Uh, You can open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And let, let me say what an absolute joy it is to be here with you. This is one of my favorite churches for a variety of reasons, um, not the least of which is just the um, old friends that um, are here in this church and, and to just see Larry and Marilyn be up here and, and leading and uh, just the joy that they always express in you all. So thanks for having me. It's, uh, it is a pure joy to be here. And uh, just aware, I was, as I was sitting there this morning, um, you know, when Jesus talks about building his church, uh, just how Jesus is at work here in building this church. And uh, just to, to be with Larry and hear what's going on here. And uh, Devin Coughlin coming, which is just a gift of God to you all. And just another example of his grace and his building uh, for you all. Uh, I'm just I'm so excited about the future here, as I know you all are. Uh, so thanks for letting me come. Thanks for letting me be a part of this. Uh, Exodus chapter 20. I want to talk to you about law and gospel. Law and gospel. Uh, I've noted three very encouraging trends over about the last 20 years in Christianity in America. Uh, the first trend is the focus on the gospel as more than just a message that gets us saved. You know, a message you hear and then you put on the shelf somewhere like a trophy from the past. Um, that the, the gospel has come to the forefront as a, as a message that we need to hear each and every day of our lives. And um, one of the things I'm, I'm so aware of is uh, that our own C.J. Mahaney from Sovereign Grace Ministries was really one of the men that, that took the lead uh, in this, in Christianity in America. So we have much to be grateful there. So uh, an increasing emphasis on the gospel, uh, an increasing emphasis on the church uh, in response to some of the new ways to do church uh, or even um, we don't need the church at all type of movement. And so you see more and more books, more and more preaching, more and more conferences on the local church and the importance of the local church, much to be grateful for there. And then most recently, uh, I've noticed just new books, new conferences, uh, focusing on the issue of holiness and the importance of holiness and godliness in the life of individual Christians. One of the most significant books is by a man that we're probably familiar with, Kevin DeYoung. Uh, It was a book called The Hole in Our Holiness. And in that book, he wrote the following. The hole in our holiness is that we don't really care much about it. Passionate exhortations to pursue gospel-driven holiness is barely heard in most of our churches. I'm talking about the failure of Christians, especially the younger generation, but uh, I don't think the older generation is exempt, especially the younger generation, to take seriously one of the great aims of our redemption and one of the required evidence for eternal life, our holiness. He went on to say, there is a gap between our love for the gospel and our love for godliness. However, the interesting thing that's happening at the same time is there's been an increased emphasis on holiness, an increased emphasis on the old mistake or heresy of antinomianism. Antinomian simply means against the law. 
Uh, the idea that Christians aren't required to obey the law because we're saved by grace. And this, this is making a comeback, paralleling uh, people talking about holiness. Uh, one particular book, Jesus plus everything, and not, plus nothing equals everything, a very popular book. The thesis is the only thing required for us to grow or for sanctification is just to think more about what Jesus has done for us. In other words, the law of God is to play no role in the Christian's life. It's a position that we, and more importantly, uh, Reformed folks throughout history uh, simply can't agree with. So given all of that, I think it's wise for believers to take a careful look at the moral law again, especially the moral law as represented in the Ten Commandments, and ask the following question. And it's the question that I hope to answer for you this morning. The question is this, what is my obligation to obey these commands? As a Christian saved by grace, what is my obligation to obey God's commands? And to answer in a way that no way creates a gap between our love for the gospel and our love for godliness, because our love for godliness, our love for holiness, is actually a conspicuous effect of the gospel in our lives. So to that end, let's pray, and then we're going to just do a brief review of Exodus and then jump into our passage for today. Father, I just thank you for the opportunity to be here with this church. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about this really important topic. Uh, I know this is a church that's well taught. I know this is a church uh, that understands these things, but I pray that you would just give us fresh understanding and fresh uh, passion and impetus and desire to live lives of careful holiness, lives that carefully consider what you call us to be and do and how you call us to think as Christians so that there would be no gap between our love for the gospel, which is glorious and conspicuous, and our love for holiness and obedience to your law. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we get to Exodus 20, I think it would be helpful for us to just do a quick review of Exodus. Uh, In the original Hebrew of the book of Exodus, the first word is actually and. Uh, It starts with the word uh, and, showing us that the book of Exodus is really connected back to the book of Genesis. Like Genesis, Exodus is written by Moses, uh, covers events taking place about 1447 B.C., a long time ago. And if we're going to understand Uh, the Ten Commandments and the moral law, we got to understand how we got there. Uh, In Genesis chapter 15, some of you might remember, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And it's this glorious covenant that is to last throughout all eternity. Uh, But in the midst of giving him that covenant, he says, but... Uh, before you get one of the benefits of the covenant, which is living in this promised land that I've given you, 400 years uh, in Egypt. And uh, so uh, Joseph, one of the, uh, Abraham's grandsons, great-grandsons, uh, his brothers sell him uh, to these, these Ishmaelite slave traders, and he's taken to Egypt where Joseph rises to power. 
and a famine eventually gives uh, Jacob, Joseph's father, and his entire family an excuse uh, to go to Egypt, 70 people in all, uh, where the leader of the country, the Pharaoh, is friendly to Joseph, and he settles them in the best land in all of Egypt, a place called the land of Goshen. Uh, And that brings us then to uh, Exodus chapter 1, where we see that years later, the people of God are being oppressed by the Egyptians. Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, let us multiply, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And so their solution to this is to enslave uh, this, this people. Well, in Exodus chapter 2, we read this uh, man Moses is born and he's, and he's rescued and he's adopted by Pharaoh's own daughter. Uh, but then eventually he has to flee Egypt. It becomes a, uh, a sheep herder. And one day he's out just minding his own business, taking care of the sheep. Uh, God appears to him in this burning bush and he calls him to go back to Egypt uh, to be the leader in setting his people free. So he returns to Egypt. You probably remember the story of all of the plagues that come upon them. Uh, God putting pressure on Pharaoh to let my people go so that they might serve me. Uh, The final plague has to do with the death of the firstborn. But the people of uh, Israel escape through the Passover by applying blood on the doors of their houses, a clear foreshadowing of Jesus Christ to come. Uh, They escape, they cross the Red Sea, and finally they cross the wilderness and arrive at this mountain called Mount Sinai. And when they come to Mount Sinai, Moses begins to prepare them to receive uh, the law of God. We read that God himself comes down upon Mount Sinai. And it's quite an appearance. It says there's thunder, there's lightning, there's trumpets, there's fire, there's smokes. All of these things representative of of God's majestic holiness. And so we have this dramatic and frightening scene in front of the people that leads to chapter 20, God giving the Ten Commandments. So let's read uh, chapter 20, just verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words, saying... I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. A a constitution is, by definition, a body of fundamental principles or established precedents according to which a state or other organization is acknowledged to be governed. And a preamble to a constitution is just a preliminary or preparatory statement. Uh, Most of us are familiar with the preamble to our own constitution. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States. Now, essentially, the Ten Commandments that God is going to give them is the constitution for the nation of Israel. And verses 1 and 2, which we just read, are the preamble. The preamble upon which these fundamental principles 
of how this nation is to be governed is going to be uh, based. The fundamental principles of grace and gospel, which they experienced in the Exodus. So in verse 1, we, we find this, God spoke all these words. Now, when we read that, it should immediately alert us to the importance of what is about to follow. When God speaks in Scripture, he usually speaks uh, through Scripture writers through the Holy Spirit. First uh, Peter writes, uh, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But here we have something different. We have God speaking directly to his people. Uh, one man said, God himself is the preacher in Exodus chapter 20. The same God who spoke the world into being uh, just by speaking words, speaks the world into being out of nothing, is now speaking to a people and making a nation, speaking a nation into being through this constitution. And then we get to verse 2, and verse 2 answers three very important questions for us. Uh, who he is, who this God is who's speaking, what he is to them, and what he has done for them. He answers the first question when he pronounces his name, I am the Lord. Lord here is, is the biblical covenant name, Yahweh or Jehovah, that in your Bibles, whenever you see Lord in all caps, it's, it's that particular covenant name. That name is an expression of God's essential nature, of God's essential uh, character. So if they were scared by the thunder and lightning and the trumpet and the smoke and the fire, what terrified them even more than that was the voice of God speaking. In fact, they were so terrified that they come to Moses and said, don't let God speak to us anymore, lest we die. You just hear and you tell us what he said and we'll be satisfied uh, with that. And so we have the, the eternal, self-existent, self-sufficient, all-powerful, all-knowing, perfectly pure, holy, and sovereign God speaking to a people. And yet, God goes on, the Lord your God. God just isn't God in general to them. He isn't simply God by virtue of being the creator. He is God in a very specific way to them. He is God to a covenant people. He's God in a different way than he is to any other people. He is their God. And in the midst of the terror that they're experiencing because of all the thunder and smoke and fire and God's voice, in the midst of the terror, these are comforting words to them. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, writes, Had he called himself Jehovah only... It might have terrified us and made us flee from him. But when he says, thy God, it allures and draws us to him. This, though the preference to the law, is pure gospel. And this pure gospel continues. The Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of of slavery. 
the, the exodus that happens before the giving of the Ten Commandments is the great act of God's salvation in the Old Testament. If you will, it is the gospel of the Old Testament. It is the good news of the Old Testament. Here, we have the language of God's grace. And particularly, we have the language of redemption. Uh, To redeem, it's a word we commonly say, but to redeem means to buy back from slavery through the payment of a ransom. To buy back from slavery through the payment of a ransom. And one of the things we need to recognize about redemption is that biblically redemption is not only from something. They were redeemed from slavery in Egypt. Redemption is always to something as well. And in this case, what their redemption was to was to a land that had been promised to them. But more importantly, it was to a relationship with God. In Exodus 19, chapter 4, God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So they were redeemed out of Egypt, not just to go into a land, but to be brought to God himself. Now, here's the important point we need to understand before we dive into uh, the Ten Commandments. The commandments were given to those or were for those who had already been redeemed or bought back from slavery. They were for those who had already been redeemed. The commandments weren't a means of redeeming them. It wasn't the way that God redeemed them. They weren't a means of becoming God's people. They were a way to live in the full blessings of what it meant to be God's people. God had already made a covenant with his people, with Abraham, 400 years before. And that covenant wasn't based on law. It was based on God's promises, and it was based on Abraham's faith. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him or given to him as righteousness. And so the law is never intended to do away with that covenant. Paul actually addresses this in Galatians chapter 3, 17 and 18. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. So the the commandments weren't the means by which they were to be redeemed. They weren't the means by which they were to have a relationship with God. But they were the means by which they were to walk out the relationship that they had from God. To fulfill the purpose that he had for redeeming them, to have a relationship with him. And as he kept saying over and over to Pharaoh, to let my people go so that they might serve me. Again, Moses uh, addresses this in Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So we see that the blessings of God 
both precede their obedience and follow their obedience. Their relationship with God is established purely by God's grace. But uh, their relationship is to be walked out in obedience. And the people understand this and they acknowledge uh, this. And so at the end of, of Exodus chapter 24, after Moses goes through all of the law, he, he reads the law to him and the people said, we'll follow it. We're, we're in. This is our constitution. Um, we're, we're with you. So that's establishing the nation of Israel. That's nice. Interesting history. What does that mean for us today? So what? We're not Israelites, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I want to just give you five things that we must keep before us always as Christians as we ponder the question I ask at the beginning. What is my obligation now to obey these commands that God has, has given us? Five things. The first is this. Our obedience is always connected to the gospel. Our obedience is always connected to the gospel. What is true of them way back when is also true of us. He is the Lord, our God. He's the Lord, your God. And he brought you out of slavery, not to Egypt, not from Egypt, but slavery to sin and slavery to death and slavery to devil. And he did that not through the work of Moses, but through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The place where that ransom price was paid to set us free. So we will always and forever be saved and related to God on the basis of the gospel and not on the basis of our own merit, not on the basis of anything that we do. The one thing that the law is clearly not for, I'm going to talk about what it's for, but the one thing it is clearly not for is to make us or bring us into a right relationship with God. Paul says in Galatians 2.16, a person is not justified or declared righteous. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. By works of the law, no one will be justified. It's not what the law is for. Romans 10, 4, he goes on to say, for Christ is the end of the law. And sometimes people just stop there. Let's not stop there. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness or right standing. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Christ isn't the end of the law. But he's the end of the law for righteousness as a means of being right before God. Christ is the end of the law for that purpose. Only the gospel, only the gospel can make someone right with God. Only the gospel can keep someone right with God. We talk a lot in Sovereign Grace Ministries about being gospel-centered or cross-centered. And the reason that we need to be cross-centered, the reason the cross is central is because it's through the cross and the cross only that we relate to and receive from God. That's why the gospel is important to our ongoing Christian life. There is no other way that we ever relate to God except on the merits of Jesus Christ, that we are acceptable to God except on the merits of Jesus Christ. We only relate to him. We always relate to him based on what Christ has done, not our own merit. And we always receive from him. 
based on what Christ has done and not our own merit or not our own accomplishments. So the gospel is critical to us because we recognize that in an ongoing way, the only way we relate to, the only way we receive from God is through the cross of Christ, is through the gospel, is through the merits of Christ. And so our obedience is always connected to the gospel. That's why the, the legalism is so misunderstood by so many. Legalism is not obeying. Legalism is trying to obey to gain some merit from God so that we might relate to him or receive from him. Okay, that's number one. Our obedience is always connected to the gospel. Second, we are obligated to obey God's commandments. We're obligated to obey. Um, Laws of any nation can be repealed. Our constitution can be and is continually amended, uh, but not God's commands. They can never be repealed and they will never be amended. Uh, You've heard the expression set in stone uh, before. The expression set in stone comes from the fact that God actually took these two stone tablets, if you remember the story, and it says with his own finger wrote these commandments on these, these tablets of stone. So to be set in stone is to be permanent. There's a permanence to God's command. There's a permanence to God's commands because there's nothing arbitrary about them, because there is nothing situational uh, about them. There's a permanence to God's commands because they are a reflection of God's own perfect and unchangeable nature. When God gives these commands, they just reflect who he is. They reflect his perfect holiness. So they're a reflection of his perfect and unchangeable nature. And as a result, they're going to remain in effect as long as time endures. Because God will remain in effect as long as time endures. They won't change because God's nature doesn't change. They remain in effect. And so not just the Old Testament writers, but the New Testament writers tell us things like he chose us to be holy and blameless in him. And they say he called us to the obedience of faith, to be holy as I am holy, to make every effort to be holy to purify yourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God, to present ourselves as slaves to obedience, which leads to righteousness, to train yourself to be godly, to put off the old self and put on the new self, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, to do the good works that God has prepared in advance for you to do, to devote yourself to good works which are excellent and profitable for people. Now, these are just some of the general commands uh, about holiness, not to mention all the specific ones that the New Testament gives us in regards to how to live a holy life. So I I think the question for for people who would say, we don't need the law, is then how do you know what life, a good life, looks like, both positively, what are we to do, and negatively, what are we to avoid? 
See, the commandments of God are like a, a map or a chart, uh, or for you people under 30, a GPS. Probably don't even know what a map, map, chart, what's that? Some kind of ancient thing that... <laughs> a map or a chart or a GPS that helps us to navigate life. God's commands shows us what it looks like to be holy. They show us what it looks like to conform to Christ's image. They show us what good works are and what it looks like to do those good works. Again, the Puritan Thomas Watson said, the moral law is a copy of God's will, our spiritual directory. It shows us what sins to avoid and what duties to pursue. So the gospel never eliminates our duty to obey God. Never eliminates it. Uh, In fact, the gospel actually puts a greater obligation on Christians to obey the law. Uh, In the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 12, uh, the writer describes for us these two scenes. He he describes first the the scene at Mount Sinai that that we just read about, the thunder and the smoke and the fire and God's voice. He describes that scene and he says to Christians, you haven't come there. That's, that's not the mountain before which you're standing. And then he describes another scene, this heavenly mountain, what he calls heavenly Mount Zion. And he says, Christians, you have come there. You haven't come there, but you have come here. And then he goes on to say this, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. So we haven't come to Mount Zion. We have come to, uh, haven't come to Mount Sinai. We've come to Mount Zion. And yet the writer goes on to say, now see that you don't refuse. Because if it was serious to refuse the one who spoke at Mount Sinai, how much more serious to refuse the one who speaks to you from the heavenly uh, mountain. In fact, one of the wonderful things about the New Testament is it actually makes this even clearer to us what it means to obey God's commands. The Sermon on the Mount is the greatest example where Jesus doesn't simply um, talk about our outward actions, do this, do this, do this, do this, but he talks about our inward attitudes and, and our motivations of heart Uh, that have always been what the law has been about. Uh, John Calvin said uh, of of, uh, the Sermon on the Mount that he was restoring the integrity of the law. Uh, Integrity means to be whole. He's he's making the law whole again for us. He's helping us to understand what the whole law involves, not just do this, don't do that, but but all the inward attitudes and motivations of the heart that go along with it. So... We're, we're commanded to obey, continue to obey, uh, obligated to continue to obey the law. Third, the commandments of God are key to living a blessed and happy life. The commandments of God are key to living a blessed and happy life. <laughs> Many Christians think of God's commands and think of them negatively. Negatively. So when David writes in Psalm 119.97, Oh, how I love your law. 
Or when Paul writes in Romans 7, 12, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous and good. A lot of Christians think to themselves, huh? Love the law? Commandments good? What, what are you talking about? But when Moses um, renewed the covenant with the people of Israel after the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 6, 24, he says, and the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes for your good always. For your good always. You see, it's not, it's not the commandments that are problems. Sin is our problem. Sin is the thing that curses us. Sin is the thing that defiles us. Sin is not for our good always, but rather for our harm always. Our harm always not only in this world, but in the world to come. But the commandments on, on the other side, Paul talks about the, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, all scripture, commandments are part of scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So when Paul talks about all scripture there, he's talking about the Old Testament. He's talking about Exodus 20. He's talking about the Ten Commandments and all of God's other laws. And he's saying, look, folks, these commandments are profitable. They will profit you. They will teach you. They will reprove you. They will correct you. They will train you. And the result of that, the reason it's profitable, is if they do all of these things in you, you will be complete. And you will be equipped for every good work that God has called you to. In other words, if you want to live a blessed and happy life, and anybody here that doesn't want to, come on. We all want to live blessed and happy lives. If you want to live a blessed and happy life, God has given you a roadmap for, to do that life, to live that life. That's why David can say, oh, I love your law. And Paul can say, this law is really good because it will profit us. It will be a blessing to us. The most blessed life, the best possible life that we could live is a life lived following the commands and the law of God. It's a key to a blessed and a happy life. Fourthly, uh, the commandments enable us to live a life that is pleasing to God. A life that's pleasing to God. Just because the law doesn't make us acceptable to God, only Christ can do that. Uh, or obedience doesn't add anything to the finished work of the cross, the finished work of, of Jesus it doesn't mean that God is uninterested in our obedience or in our good works. The Bible is very clear. It pleases God when his children obey. It's Father's Day. Father, does it please you when your children obey? Yes, of course it does. It pleases God when his children obey. And on the flip side, it displeases God when his children disobey. Now, Rather than being contrary to grace or the opposite of grace, man's desire to keep the law so that he might please God is actually a sign of grace. 
It's a sign that one has been genuinely saved and that the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart and that God has written his law in your heart and in your mind and it's there so you want to please God. Law keeping is an expression of love for God and love for your neighbor. That's why Jesus can summarize this whole law in, in two commands. Love God and love your neighbor. Love, law keeping is a reflect. I want to love God. I want to please him. Keep his law. I want to I love my neighbor. I want to care for people. Keep his law. God says in, in John, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And later on, this is the good news. This is what I like. Uh, in 1 John, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. And they're not burdensome. Why? Because we have this wonderful motivation to please God and to live a blessed life. And that's where the gospel and, and grace come in. Uh, though our obedience and good works they're always going to be touched with some lack of perfection. I remember early on in my Christian life, I just realized, you know, I never have and I'm never going to do an actually perfect work. Um, and that wasn't actually discouraging to me. It was actually kind of freeing. Oh, good. You know, I don't have to worry about doing perfect works. Uh, but nonetheless, our obedience and works are pleasing to God. And they're accepted by God by virtue of our relationship with Jesus Christ. This, this is the good news. The law requires exact obedience. You do it exactly or you die. The law condemns every imperfection. But because of the gospel, God now accepts sincere obedience in Jesus Christ. Uh, I love what Thomas Watson said about this. He said, he will see faith and pass over the failing. God's pleased with our obedience and good works in Christ. That's, a, that's just a great grace that we can live a life that is pleasing to God. Okay, our obedience is always connected to the gospel. We're obligated to obey the commands. Uh, they are a key to a blessed and happy life. They enable us to live a life that is pleasing to God. And last but not least is this. We now have the power to obey these commands through the Holy Spirit. One of the problems with the law was it gave no strength to obey it. It was just outside of us saying, do this. And it didn't give us any strength or ability to do it, to obey it. The gospel does. Uh, writer of Hebrews says in 1016, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and write it on their minds. In other words, the commands are no longer external to us, but now they've become internal to us. They're ingrained. They're, they're part of a Christian's spiritual DNA. It's what God was talking about when he said to the prophet Ezekiel, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that that doesn't make obedience necessarily easy since we're always going to have to deal with remaining sin. But it does make obedience increasingly possible. Uh, we... 
the, the point of all of this is, is not to frustrate us. Oh, it's the blessed life and I can please God, but I just can't seem to do it. Um, we recognize that God has given us the ability to do it through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. One of the themes, we, we uh, at, down in Crossway, we just recently did an entire series on the Ten Commandments. So we went through each commandment, talked about what it prescribes for us and what it prohibits. But uh, one of the themes, scriptures, that uh, just captured my heart that we uh, came back to over and over again um, in the series was also from Psalm 119.18. It was really my prayer for uh, the entire series, and it was actually my prayer for you all this morning. Psalm 119.18, David writes, Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. My prayer for you is that God would open your eyes afresh. Not, not to create this false conflict between law and gospel, between obedience and grace. That you would open our eyes to see the blessings and the joy that come with obeying God's commands, with being able to live a life that is blessed and pleasing to God, not to earn anything from him, but because through Christ we have already received everything from him. Father, grant us that grace. Open our eyes, continual ways to see wonderful things from your law. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.